Hi, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to In Conversation with Amanda Lang. On this program, you'll hear journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang's analysis of contemporary events, issues, and ideas exclusively for The Hub. In Conversation with Amanda Lang is hosted by The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts featuring Amanda Lang are generously supported by the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be back in conversation with award-winning journalist and best-selling author Amanda Lang for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series on the key issues concerning Canadian business, economics, and public policy. In today's conversation, we'll discuss the ongoing challenges of high inflation and how it's manifesting itself in our politics and policy. I'm grateful to get Amanda's reaction to last week's August numbers, which showed that inflation remains elevated above the Bank of Canada's target and whether we should expect a return to rising interest rates when the bank is set to make its next interest rate announcement in October. We'll also cover recent policy developments, including growing attention to housing in the form of competing proposals from the Trudeau government and Conservative Party leader Pierre Palio to try to nudge provinces and cities into building more homes, as well as the recent spectacle of the so-called grocery summit in which the Prime Minister and Minister of Finance Christia Freeland apparently put the grocery CEOs on notice that they expect lower prices by Thanksgiving. Amanda, we have a lot to cover. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. Let's start with the inflation numbers. Uh, You follow these issues more closely than I do, but I admit I was surprised. It's the first year-over-year increase since January, and it's higher than many economists expected. What's your top-line reaction? So we, of course, need to strip out the real driver, which was gasoline prices, energy prices remain a huge factor. And we get that gets us to that perennial problem of why do we strip something out that's a very real cost to uh, individuals and businesses. And while it is volatile, which is why economists don't like it. Uh, it's a real one. And you see that showing up in, on the bottom line for businesses, the input costs of industries that are heavy on oil and gas. You see them. They're the ones that are seeing their, their profits struggling in the last couple of years. So uh, that was the big driver. But there there is a kind of an uncomfortable amount of uh, pressure from those so-called core areas as well. And it does remain elevated. We got uh, a couple of days later, a day later, the review of, of the bank's thinking. And you know the, the bank is basically saying, we don't know if it just hasn't been enough time for our previous hikes to take hold or whether we need to, to do more. So they really are doing a bit of a wait and see approach. Uh, and it will matter a lot on the data we get, especially on our household spending data uh, in terms of what they do next. I think most people expect one more hike, but do they need to do more than that? It's still an open question. Yeah, as you say, uh, we won't hear from the bank until next month, but it is notable that some analysts are once again speculating about uh, further rate hikes. Uh, one such analyst said, Amanda, quote, expectations for more tightening from the bank have shot up, unquote. Others are a bit more sanguine and anticipate the bank to maintain a rather cautious approach. What's your sense? How does Tiff Macklin balance this latest inflation news with other evidence that the economy is softening? How does he walk that line? I mean, I think they are being extremely prudent because the thing that they really don't want to do, and this is true um, elsewhere, but especially the U.S., 
is, of course, cause a nasty recession. And it doesn't take that much of an overshoot on the credit side to, to put you in a position where suddenly you're needing to stimulate lower rates, inject fiscal stimulus. That would be a disaster right now on all kinds of levels, including, of course, uh, from a fiscal prudence point of view in this country. So the, the idea that they want to wait and see, they are signs. there are signs that they're happy about. So you might remember that in, in the first quarter of this year, household spending did was surprisingly strong. And the bank was kind of shocked by that. And it, it kind of shocked them out of their doldrums. Um, it, we, we did what they wanted in second quarter and we slowed our role. Uh, we, we are all of us kind of saying, wow, our you know home values are adjusting and our credit is really starting to, to hit. The one wild card, and the bank made note of this in their commentary, is wage growth. It's still four to five percent. And there was a bit of catch up to do, Sean. Of course, over a long period of time, wages had lagged corporate profitability. So there was room for that. But that is that is a stickiness that the bank's watching. They want to see that stop. They want to see the slight softness that we're seeing in the labor market show up in weakness in wages. I'll tell you what I'm waiting for are the details of that Unifor tentative agreement with forward in this country, because if that includes Matt, the kind of massive wage increases that the CAW is asking for south of the border, as well as huge other concessions, that'll tell you labor still has the upper hand. And by the way, as we've seen lately, that's a real interesting case, because even if there's a tentative deal, we've seen workers not ratify yes. these deals in this country, right? The Metro workers said thanks, but no thanks to their, the deal their union had worked out. So labor still feels its its strength here. And that's something the bank needs to see soften a little bit, if, if it's honest. You mentioned uh, the role of gas prices earlier. It, it strikes me, Amanda, as another case where Pierre Polyev, either by intent or happenstance, seems to be ahead of the curve. He spent the summer on a so-called axe the tax campaign in favor of eliminating the carbon tax. And one wonders if the carbon tax faces greater political fragility than we've seen in some time. Canadians, on one hand, tell pollsters that they're committed to climate action. On the other hand, they have these growing concerns about affordability. Talk a bit about that cognitive dissonance and, and the challenge for policymakers in crafting policies that uh, make progress on the climate but uh, try to minimize the, the, the negative effect in terms of higher inflation and, and pinching the pocketbooks of Canadian households. Yeah, this is a, there's a political reality here. I wish it was called something else, Sean. When this, when this comes up every time, I, I think, ugh, if only it wasn't called a tax, a carbon <laughs> cost, a carbon toll. Um, because what it is, of course, is intended to be a way of pricing in the, the real externalities, all of the downstream impacts of our use of filling up our, you know, that standing out there at the pump, filling up our car, there's a bunch of other costs that we're now going to have to bear. And ideally what it is, is of course, something that'll help us uh, manage our, our demand, right? We'll use less of it. We'll make better choices. And in an ideal scenario, it would go up and up and up and everybody who could would make the choice to use less of this commodity. And then that would, of course, be the orderly way to reduce our consumption. You can't do it overnight. My biggest complaint actually about this is that they do this kind of sleight of hand where they charge it on one side and then send it back to us on the other so that for a lot of Canadians, it's a it's a wash. I hate that. I, I, I This is, you know, and I'm not somebody who often says, please, you know, raise my taxes or make things more expensive. But I do think there are some things and getting our footprint down is one of them for all discretionary use. So could we get more creative about what's not discretionary, where people do need the extra support, who does and who doesn't? I think that is actually going to be the policy problem of the next 
of, a, of, of any future government that's grappling with this, as we see that the, the proportion of that tax rise, but that it yes. should go away, I think, just as wrongheaded about how to reduce use of something that we need to reduce use of. Yeah, it's a ton of insight there. I, I know we've talked about it on a past episode, but it's worth just plugging uh, for listeners and viewers um, that as the carbon tax rises to its projective um, peak of a $175 per ton, uh, the revenue that that's going to throw off is massive, far more than one would reasonably expect to be returned in the form of the, the climate rebate. And so there are big questions in front of policymakers. Is that used to uh, lower other taxes, whether they're personal taxes or or business taxes or for investments in new technology or whatever? Um, mm-hmm. And it seems to me that that question hasn't been resolved and maybe it won't be resolved if Pierre Polyev has its way, has his way. But let, let's come to housing now. It's to something we've discussed in the past. Up until now, there's a case that the Trudeau government has been a step behind the other parties. Yet on the heels of its recent caucus meeting, where one gets a sense that caucus members basically told the, the PM and his ministers to get their act together, we're starting to see new policies out of the government, including waiving the HST GST on rental construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've also seen this week a new private member's bill from Pierre Polyev that would codify his plan to use a combination of financial inducements and financial penalties for municipalities to build more homes. Amanda, it's interesting that politicians are now seizing on this issue. The one challenge, though, is that at least the government is trying to walk a careful line where it says it wants prices to become affordable for those outside the market, but not to come down for those who own their homes. Talk about that challenge and how, if at all, it's reconcilable. I mean, I think you're you're talking about the core of this problem, and I don't think it is reconcilable. And, and so I, I want to jump back to the plan, which, of course, um, from the federal government is an old plan. It was an election promise long ago in the midst of time uh, that they're following through on. Uh, my my initial reaction to anything like this is to ask, you know, is this achieving what we needed to achieve? Um, and then you get to the kind of why. Why do developers need a tax break, your tax dollars to incentivize them to do their own business? We don't tend to incentivize, uh, you know, furniture makers or tire manufacturers to do their business. So do developers need this? Do they need more profit? And I had a quick look and I'm uh, this isn't exhaustive, but at the data that I could find on developers, their profit margins are pretty good. And it depends mm-hmm. on how you break it down. But developers are something like 13 uh, percent net margin. Construction companies, not quite as strong, but five and a half percent, which to me says they're doing OK. And if they don't have incentives to build, it's not a financial problem. So then, you, then we could debate whether or not a federal government or a would-be federal government trying to intervene in a municipal level organization, that strikes me as problematic on a bunch of levels. Everybody knows we have this problem, which brings me back to your point, which is, of course, the only point. We have financialized our housing system. We've created it as a market of assets. And uh, the participants and the vast majority of Canadians are participants in the housing market already. Uh, although, as we bring, of course, new Canadians, we, that, that the data will shift. Uh, we don't want it to change. If we're really honest, we, we'd love the idea of affordability. And we definitely want our relatives to get in on this game. But we <laughs> don't actually want the value of our assets to plummet. Um, and that is what has to happen. And I, you know, I, the, to me, the, the bright spot in all of this is this hasn't been going on very long. 
It's only in the last, now, obviously the financialization has been a process going back since the 1980s, but it's really only in the last decade or so of these incredibly low and falling interest rates that we've seen the massive distortion of our economy towards housing. And the Hub did some great work on this. I loved it, talking about why it's not a good thing that housing is now the biggest sector of our economy, housing and construction, because it's a non-producing sector. It does, there's no value add to anybody else once you finish building a house. Uh, and that's that's the problem that we have. And so how, what is the problem? I mean, I'll toss that back to you because you are somebody who's made <laughs> policies. What is the policy that unwinds that the, the only good news is it hasn't been that long. So I feel like we could do it. We, there's still those of us who remember when your house wasn't a windfall. It was just a place to live and store value and you know keep, uh, keep up with inflation, basically, is what homes did for most of our history. It's only the last 15 years or so that we get these like weird spiky periods. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. Your observation that the problem here isn't the need for financial inducements for builders is such an insightful one. And it reflects a problematic tendency on the part of uh, governments and policymakers, not just in Canada, everywhere. It's an age-old problem when it comes to public policy, which is uh, whenever the market isn't producing an outcome that governments and policymakers want, they presume it means that there's a market failure that necessitates a government intervention. When, in fact, more often than not, the reason the market isn't functioning properly is because of pre-existing government distortion. So in other words, rather than layering new distortions on top of the market, the, the more useful thing to do is to step back and say, what are we currently doing that is exactly. standing in the way of markets doing what markets do, which is to bring supply and demand into something resembling equilibrium. And when it comes to housing, there are dozens of ways in which governments at all orders are influencing the functioning of the market. Some of them quite understandably, but we should be clear-eyed about uh, what we're doing, right? I think this is the key point because people keep talking about market failure. And in fact, this market is functioning exactly as it has been designed to function. So yes, the question is what, and I, you know, the analogy that I keep thinking of is to another basic human need and therefore right that we can all agree on. And that is uh, potable water. Drinking water is something we all agree that everybody in Canada should have. We'll set aside the fact that some still don't, uh, but we do, we, and it, can you imagine, just go do a little thought exercise of imagine if we created a system where some of us get more water, some of us get nicer water, some of us have the water and then we can sell it later uh, for a windfall because everybody needs water. So you know that somebody's gonna, it, you just wouldn't, you would never envision a system where a government would participate in that plan. And yet housing is also a core need and a basic human right. 
uh, and we've somehow let it get away from us. Now, it is more than that. And I'm not suggesting that we, you know, I don't want like Soviet style, you know, <laughs> apartments built by government. But there has got to be some middle ground where we remember that like other basic human needs, this one shouldn't be distorted by markets. It should or we shouldn't create markets that that have bad outcomes, which is really what we've done. Yeah, I think that's right. That there, but that requires a bit of introspection on the part of policymakers, right? Rather than um, simply layering new interventions on on the top of the market, you know, we are, they ought to look in the mirror. There, the you know, there's been really good research done by the CD Howe Institute on the role of land use regulations, development fees, and so on in terms of influencing building at the local level. There are provincial policies similarly related to land use, and then at the national level. There is subsidized mortgage insurance. There is the capital gains exemption on primary residence. There, as you said earlier, the extraordinary low interest rate environment that we've lived in over the past couple of decades. So that's a very long way of saying you use the analogy of water. The analogy I would use is in most parts of our daily life, the market essentially is achieving equilibrium. You know, we we don't we're not worried we're not going to be able to get an iPhone or we're not worried we're going to be able to get a book or something like that. The areas where government is most present, uh, childcare, healthcare, and housing, these supply-demand gaps seem to present themselves. And, you know, I, I don't think that's a, a coincidence. And so, you know, there may be a role for government here to step in in different places, but I, I think your insight that, you know, first do no harm is, is a really insightful point. And hopefully it's something that policymakers take seriously. But I want to raise another structural issue that I've been thinking a bit about lately as it relates to housing. And that is the extent to which we are the inheritors of past decisions. Take the city of Toronto, for example, where you are. For the parts of the city about three kilometers beyond Union Station, there was a decision over time to essentially build detached and semi-detached homes and not prioritize density. It's hard to overturn that decision now, right? People are living in those homes and people want yes. to buy those homes. So what do we do? How how do we overcome the, these choices of the past? Well, so we can't obviously overcome, well, we can over time. We can rebuild things. One thing, of course, that can happen immediately, it is in small ways, as you see cities grappling with this, is allowing for rezoning. So uh, multifamily use of single family homes, garden apartments, all of these things that can happen right away and create more space. I mean, I, you can look at Toronto and say, you know, the change in density in the in the core, the downtown core, with all of the, the building of uh, condos has been extraordinary over the last last decade. And it's, I love it. It makes it look like a real city. It's, it's the infill is wonderful. What we didn't do along the way was say, hold on, what are we building? Are they all 300 square foot apartments for foreign students whose you know, investor father is going to put them in there? for? I, because I don't know who else lives in a 300 square foot apartment. There should have been more attention paid to the needs of families, the needs of affordability. And while we're at it, let's put some new schools in and think about where the local fire station capacity is and all the rest of it. There was just a lot of kind of willy nilly building of this is I guess this comes back, Sean, to I mean, you can make the case that the, the government is I think we're going to I think when you lump healthcare and housing together, we're. I, I, I think we'll get into a disagreement about whether there's too much government intervention in housing. I take your point that there are government friction points that are causing trouble. But in some ways, there's been too little. There's been too little oversight uh, about what gets built and where. 
And that would be one example I would say is the building we did do in big cities in this country was the wrong building for what we need. And nobody really was sitting thinking about a master plan of any of that. Yeah, your point about the kind of unevenness between the hyperdensity in the core relative to other parts of the city is a really good one. Uh, we'll be publishing some analysis at the Hub in the coming days that actually looks at the concentration of, of housing starts throughout the GTA. And it's really extraordinary. Within three kilometers of uh, Union Station, something like three quarters of all new starts between 2016 and 2021 uh, has taken place. So there's this cone Amazing. of major development and progress. And, and, and then the rest of the region, which has seen uh, far less growth. And, and I think, as I say, one of the challenges facing policymakers to try to get at these affordability issues is, I think your point is so well taken. It's a kind of two-step. It requires two steps, doesn't it? There's the quantitative mm -hmm. part. We just need more homes full stop. And then there's the qualitative part. How do we make sure that there's a kind of spectrum of housing from um, high-rise condos to, to single detached homes and everything in between to make sure that we have the right type of supply for different types of people in, in, in different circumstances. And that's really going to be key because I think we've talked in previous episodes about Mike Moffat's work on the exodus of young families from the city of Toronto. That's not good. There are huge opportunity costs to, uh, to losing kind of young dynamic people it's an economic issue. It's a social issue. We, we published a, an article a couple of weeks ago at The Hub entitled The Housing Theory of Everything. And I, I think there's something to that, that all the if you go down, eventually what you find is housing is at the core of a lot of the, the challenges facing our country. But I, I won't let you go without um, coming to the grocery store, the grocery issue yep. uh, that emerged last week. It was a bit of a surprise at the Liberal Caucus meeting to see the prime minister take a populist turn and demand that grocery CEOs come up with a plan to lower prices by Thanksgiving or face a punitive tax. The Hub has published analysis by Trevor Toome, which tells us that the idea that grocery prices are up because of excessive profits is, is wrong. It's mostly a consequence of the same inflationary trends that we've been talking about. But let me ask you a two-part question. First of all, what was your general reaction? And second, more broadly, as someone who spends a lot of time speaking to members of the business and investor communities, is there a risk, Amanda, that these kind of stunts harm perceptions of the Canadian market? Is, is there a cumulative penalty, in other words, over time for these types of anti-business actions, which I should emphasize, are the current government in Ottawa doesn't have a monopoly over. One can okay. find similar stunts across the political spectrum across the country. So my first reaction was, and it's very much tied to our, our previous conversation is, it's so fascinating that in the, it, was a, it was in a space of, of six days that they uh, were giving money to one sector. Here, developers take some tax dollars and over here saying, hey, grocers, you're making way too much money. And the fact <laughs> of the matter is developers make more than grocers. They just do. Yes. And I've said a yes. million times, I'll say it again. We should all be grateful to the grocers for staying in business because their profit margin, this mythical massive expansion in their margins, which now has them somewhere like 3.6%, uh, is less than you get on a GIC. So, I, you know, why anybody is in that business is a good question. Mm. Are they making more money? Yes. You've done the data. People can look it up. Their revenues have gone up 23%. Their costs have gone up 21%. <laughs> that little delta 
is the profit increase. They're very sensitive to that. Uh, so yes, they're making more money. However, they're still not making much. Uh, so my first reaction was, come on. Uh, to your point about how they should react, uh, it's an interesting and it's a slightly more complex one. On the one hand, I think business leaders in this country know there's a bit of a game to be played, if you will, that these are politics and that while they might privately roll their eyes, that they should publicly be seen to be being respectful to our elected officials because there are big regulatory questions here. They did just undergo some real scrutiny from the competition authority here who came back with a long list of things, recommendations, acknowledging that we maybe lack competition in this sector. So they, the question, to, the most interesting question, of course, is what was said behind closed doors. They've <laughs> promised to come back in two weeks with a plan individual to their own businesses to cut to manage prices. And that's I'm going to be waiting breathlessly for those plans because, you know, these are very competitive businesses. I and mean, they're so competitive, in fact, that where we get where we have to watch them like hawks is they use their clout to try to manage prices with suppliers and they get into these bully fights with suppliers about uh, whether they will raise or lower prices because they're so sensitive to pricing. The only thing I'll say is that this came in the Bank of Canada's note to this week about their last meeting. They are very mindful that inflation spiked because businesses in Canada were very quick to pass on increases in a way that it was even faster than historically because we can do it faster now. So people were very quick and responsive. Good for them. Uh, will they be as quick to to bring them down? On the on the, the bank is asking that question. Will we see a you know the commensurate decline in prices? That's going to be an in interesting one to watch, and we should watch because it you know hopefully should come down. If it's going to come down, there's nowhere it'll come down faster than in a highly competitive business with margins of three percent. Uh, so I would expect to see relief at the grocery store, but let's wait and see what their plans are. I can't wait. Well, I'm uh, thrilled to be back in conversation with you. And fortuitously, we'll be back in, in, in touch with you in a couple of weeks. Amanda Lang, thank you so much for joining us as always. Always a pleasure, Sean. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.